The Pinball Network is online. Launching Silverball Chronicles. Your temperature swing back yet? Uh, it was warm yesterday. And by warm, it was like 40. I think that's like, like minus six in normal temperatures. The correct format. Oh, oh, the wrong format. I gotcha. Yes. The, the one the rest of the world uses correctly. Yeah, but we're America. We don't do that shit. Do what we want. Hello everyone, I'm David Dennis and this is Silverball Chronicles. With me this month, like every month, is my co-hostess with the mostess, is Ron Ham Sandwich Hallett. How you doing, Ron? Howdy. How, what's up, fella? How are you enduring the cold? Uh, it's really not that, it, it's pretty normal here, you know, 20s, 10s. We, we use the Fahrenheit thing, so you're not used to that, but... Yeah. We are Celsius up here, so we are, you know, where zero is freezing. <laughs> it was 40 degrees yesterday. It was quite warm. Yeah. If it was 40 degrees here, I would not have pants on, and it would be amazing. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. You picked up a new game. Yes, I did. And it's been playing well, I hope. Oh, it's been playing tremendous. You've been streaming it on the Slam Tilt podcast streaming channel. Yes, I have. I've been thoroughly impressed with how much better you are at pinball than I am. I'm ashamed to say that I, on a machine like that, which is all flow, attack from Mars, I, I brick like crazy. I don't get it. Uh, you can brick a lot. The, the ramps are not exactly wide on that game, especially the right ramp. Mm, very, very good. I, uh, I had a small freak out the other night when I was playing uh, The Simpsons. By freak out, you mean you realize that what a clunk fest it is and you didn't want to play it anymore. No. The, the, the character comic book guy. I just, I picture that character as being Keith Johnson, the coder of the game when I play. And he's like <laughs> mocking me the whole time. Mm-hmm. And it just starts to infuriate me after a while. So I had I had like a big freak out. I was super close to uh, to Pretzel Multiball. And of course I drained. I freaked out. And I'm like, screw this. And I switched it over to Five Ball, which is basically a sin amongst uh, pinball players. I was just freaking, and then I played worse for about five games. Mm-hmm. I played worse than I had been on three balls. So then I just, I just got, just infuriated, and I just, I went, and I don't know, I watched like Parks and Recreation or something. Okay. So that's what I've been doing for the most part. I'm, I would love to buy a pinball machine, but things are a bit too crazy for me out there uh, when it comes to pricing, as well as the wait time for anything new in box. And of course, as people know, I have two daughters, uh, both of them under six, and they are. Fr- expensive these kids what store did you pick them up in you have to (laughs) it's they eat like so much thank god i don't have boys oh they must be horrible feeding those those things yeah i grocery shop like every two weeks so our social media update, of course, we launched silverballchronicles.com. So you can swing over there. Uh, we've got our catalog that we've worked out. So you can go and you can listen to all of our back episodes. As well as, Ron, I'm working on a super secret project on transcripts. So Ryan C., formerly of Head to Head Pinball Podcast and currently of Jesse J.'s Pinball Adventures on the Pinball Network, gave me a suggestion that I use 
some software and uh, do a few uh, transcripts for the show. So if you're looking for sort of the history or you wanted to reference this podcast in the future, we'll be able to have some of our transcripts on there. Um, Of course, I have a real life and a real job, so I'm not like putting in a lot of focus in on those transcripts, but they are underway and we're working on them. So that's going to be up on silverballchronicles.com. As always, Ron, you can engage with us at facebook.com slash silverballchronicles. That's where we do a lot of our chit-chatting. And as you know, we have sold out to thisweekinpinball.com. It's one of the sponsors. Swing on over to patreon.com slash TWIP. Uh, they kick back a little bit of their their revenue from their Patreon to those pinball hobbyists that are listed on the pinball promoters database so if you jump over there give us a five-star review doesn't mean we get paid anymore or any less from the patreon uh it's just so others can find us when they're looking around so uh one of the uh one of the things we love to do ron is recognize everybody who uh, has some comments about the show so we're going to read a few out here uh the first one is from facebook it's from chris k I'm home, locked down, and I don't get to play pinball very much recently since I sold my only pinball machine. And I rarely play on location now. But when I'm feeling down, I turn on Silverball Chronicles to cheer me up. You guys truly are the second best pinball podcast. Well, thank you so much, Chris K., for that that feedback on Facebook. Uh, Chad H. says... Gentlemen, I just wanted to tell you how much I enjoy your podcast. It just gets better with every episode. Your chemistry is fantastic, and you are by far the podcast that I most look forward to seeing pop up in my feed. The work and research that you guys are putting into this podcast is remarkable and very much appreciated. As a relative newcomer to the hobby, less than five years, I am learning so much about the people who helped create the pinball machines that I love and the people who helped to mold the hobby. Thanks a bunch, Chad. Uh, That was sent into silverballchronicles at gmail.com. And as always, we try to respond uh, when we can to all of those emails. But, you know, I got to tell you, Ron, the last episode on Dwight Sullivan, which I didn't think was that good at all, has got the most engagement from the community into the uh, the inbox and on facebook so you have poor taste I, I i must i mean i like dwight sullivan i like his code i thought it was one of our weaker episodes i mean it wasn't as good as that stern electronics episode i mean come on well it was far too short to be at our highest level i mean of course we got to record for at least three hours so uh, you know thank you so much for all the feedback on that episode everybody and just putting it out there david dennis is the one doing all the research not not the lazy slacker around here yeah, yeah. You just, you just, you just make me uh, sound professional and well polished. Oh, Pat M says, just want to say, love your podcast. I'm very interested about the past of Williams Pinball. Keep up the good work. So this was a funny one because our topic today is actually the past in Williams Pinball. So that was uh, very well sent uh, into our email there, Pat M oh, cool. at SilverballChronicles at gmail.com. So we're going to talk about Harry Williams and when he started his own company. No, no, I don't know. I don't know who that is. You don't know who Harry Williams is? Nope. Hold on, we need no. to take this offline while I smack, smack him around a bit. Isn't he the guy that 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 stole all the ideas from from David Gottlieb? No, no. <laughs> <laughs> so, guys, uh, t-shirts, right? So, if you want to help support the show, and uh, your chest is very cold during these winter months, you may want to swing over to silverballswag.com. We've got a couple of new designs 
some of them that are a little more sort of traditional kind of shirts as opposed to colorful and blingy. So please swing on over there and support the show. We have mugs. And we have mugs. Do you drink coffee? No, you're not a coffee no, person. No, but I do like mugs. Yeah, the, the person with the best mugs, I think, on the internet, when it comes to the pinball internet, is definitely Christopher Franchi. He posts his, his mugs up from time to time on Facebook, and, and they always crack me up. That's not fair. He's a professional artist. Yeah, that's true. Come he, on. He knows, the t- he's got the taste, the artistic flair. So we didn't get any corrections this yes. month. Yes. But, you know, if you want to send us some corrections for this episode, you can send them to silverballchronicles at gmail.com. But hopefully there won't be any. I don't, th- I, I don't know. This one's, this one's a risky topic. And um, I think there's going to be a lot of opinions on this episode. Oh. Actually, there'll probably be a lot of corrections because of the era. There's lots of people who are around, so they will probably be correcting us left and right. Yes. And the other thing, I think, about 1980s Williams is that there are so many resources about this time because it was such an interesting time in pinball. A lot of those sources conflict. So Steve Ritchie might say something that conflicts with something Barry Ausler would say, and Barry Ausler might say something that conflicts with somebody like a George Gomez. So there's a lot of really cool little bits and pieces here. I I can vouch for that. I had banana flipper questions and I, I asked, talked to Barry Ausler himself, and he said something opposite of what I'd heard in another place. So, mm, so there's where we're, we're going to get into that in a few minutes. But let's just jump into the topic this month. In the early 1980s, pinball was dying. Sales in pinballs fell from its peak to nine or ten thousand units to nine hundred units in the span of two years. Video games were on an upward trend. And this is where the coin-op industry began to focus its dollars. Larry DeMar and Eugene Jarvis had moved from pinball programming to create Defender at Williams, then creating their own company, VidKids, to create classics like Robotron and Stargate. Even Steve Ritchie, the king of flow and the pinball master, had moved on to create his own video game company, King Video Design. Yeah, Larry DeMar and Eugene Jarvis were smart cookies because they did Defender... And then they realized no one else in the company could do video games, so they left, created their own company, and then came back to Williams and said, hey, you should hire us to make your video games. We know your board set, because we did it. Paul DeSalt rose in the programming ranks to become the go-to programming lead on almost all of the pinball machines in the early 1980s at Williams. Other programmers would only last one title and then move on somewhere else. Only one full-time designer really remained at Williams by 1982, and that was Barry Ausler. To help fill in the production line, some of the designers from the late 70s reappeared, like Stern Electronics' Mike Cuban, who popped in for one design. Edward Tomaszowski only lasted three titles. Williams' Tony Kramer gave it another kick at the can, and even newcomer Mark Ritchie would only start designing by late 1983. Our topic today, Ron... Pinball is Dying, Part 1. Williams in the early 80s. A lot of the early 80s Williams games are quite interesting. As far as, like, rules, especially when they start cutting back on costs. 
because they're getting pounded by video games and everything else, they, they started putting some interesting things in some of these games, rules-wise. Yeah, they were looking for some sort of differentiating factor. And if you go back into the archives, check out our Gottlieb System 1 Stepping on Rakes podcast. This is sort of happening in parallel, where there's this shift into solid state. And now that the industry is more or less into the solid state era, they're kind of trying to figure out what to do. Then by the time they sort of figure out what they can do with this type of stuff, they start tumbling down a hill at, at like a rock. Cost-cutting. So you yeah. go from games with speech and multi-ball and all, all these cool features, and now we got to take the speech away because speech is expensive, one of the more expensive things. That's why a lot of these early 80s Williams games do not talk anymore. You know, go from three-ball, multi-ball, maybe to two-ball, where you can you know cut, cut costs while you can, where you can. Yeah, so let's let's kind of let's dive in. And I mentioned Barry Ausler, and he is really the one of the primary focuses of today's podcast. Uh, of course, he was one of the designers who kept Williams alive, and he worked through a lot of these tough times. Barry designed 35 games for Williams between 1978 and 1996, and he sold almost 140,000 collective units. Working with one employer for over 20 years is quite an accomplishment. I mean, nowadays, that just doesn't happen. You're mostly at one employer for five years and move on. So that's quite, that's quite the feat. Barry would ride the ups and downs of the entire pinball industry from the beginning of the solid state era to the early 80s decline to the late 80s resurgence to the 1990s heyday. So he's seen a lot, and that's even more impressive that he's lasted all that time. So right from high school, he graduated and he started working at Williams. Barry didn't even leave that building until 1996, which is amazing. In fact, Barry dodged many of the bullets when it came to staff cuts, and because of his long tenure, Barry became one of the staples of Williams' pinball design. So much like Steve Ritchie, Pat Lawler, if you look at all of the all of the Williams pinball games, there is a clear fingerprint for Barry Ausler across a lot of those eras. Some say Barry even saved pinball when it was at its lowest point in the mid-1980s, but we'll get to that in another podcast. So what, are, what do you think of Barry Ausler kind of as a whole, right? His whole career. What are your thoughts on him? Longevity. He said he was the only one that was there the whole time. Everyone else left or came and then came back or didn't come back. He was the only one there throughout the entire run from solid state to kind of the mid nineties, kind of down downturn of Williams pinball. It's like he, it's like he, he just loved what he did so much that it didn't matter what was going on. He just sort of kept on trucking. Things are going down or videos rolling up and some people are like, I got to get out of here. I got to get on video. And Barry's like, ah, you know, I'm building pinball. I'm having a great time. I also think of holes in insane toys. I know that sounds weird, but he liked his holes. Oh, like in Dirty Harry. It's got got the hole there. <laughs> Wrong podcast. But, but he, he has those in a lot of his games and, and the cool toys, like something like um, Doctor Who, that thing, that huge mechanical monstrosity triple level device in the back of that game you must make sure you have the coin door open before servicing or whatever just as it shocks you barry was so good 
at mixing sort of having fun, exciting shots, but also crazy, amazing toys. It was sort of like a very good mixture of a, of a Pat Lawler and a Steve Ritchie. He fit like right in the middle, right? Like his, his, his vision for the quote unquote world under glass always ended up working out in a, in a positive way. Mike McCoo would say Barry Ausler equals brutal outlines. I'd agree with that. It was never down the middle with Barry. It was always out the left side. Except Dirty Harry, actually. I hardly ever drain on that. <laughs> well, most of the other games, yes. I'll give you that. I mean, you are in the top 1,000. Oh, yes. Yes, of course. You're so good, Ron. You can get further in one ball on Star Wars than I can with the glass off. Unfortunately, no one else wants to play the Star Wars but me. That's the problem. <laughs> yeah. So uh, let's let's roll back way before the 80s. So, uh, you know, let's get into Barry's beginning. Uh, of course, like all people in the pinball industry, Barry used to play pinball all the time. But, of course, it was illegal in Chicago. So he would play on vacation, which is a common theme we've heard across almost all of these designers. And if you're on vacation in Ohio, the one thing that you do, seek out pinball. Barry's father worked quality control at Williams at the same time. He worked in the prototype room, right out of high school, into Williams. Two days after graduating high school in 1970, Barry started out testing back boxes with EM mechanicals. So the e, uh, so what would you test in an EM back box, Ron? Like what what, you, what was the what was the thing? Uh, reels. Right. So the little things that click, right? The little things that click. Oh man, some EM people are really upset right now. Y- yes, things that click. Yes, you can you can send your pitchforks and fires to silverballchronicles at gmail.com. Stepper units, things like that. And we probably should mention that uh, Barry is a Chicago native, so he was local. They have all of those physical, big, moving pieces inside the head, right? now. Nowadays, it's like a board and an LCD screen or, you know, in the 90s, it was a board and a couple of, you know, ribbon cables to a DMD or... You know, back then, like there was actually like big friggin mechanics in there. And so he basically spent all of that time testing right uh, when he first joined Williams, testing the back box mechanicals to make sure that when they went out on uh, into the, the world that they were working well. So on evenings and weekends, Barry would moonlight as a repair person for pinball machines for local operators. I assume, Ron, you don't make a bunch of money on the floor and helping the engineers, so you can make a little bit of that side hustle, the kids call it nowadays, out and about working on the very machines that you're building. That is a smart idea. You know, it's very possible. I I have a Spanish eyes from 1972. Who knows? Barry might have worked on the Spanish eyes in my house. Wow. He he might have did some QC on that. Who knows? That's right. They call that the Ausler Stank. Okay. So Barry worked two and a half years on the factory floor there, uh, doing quality control and and working up. That's when he moved into engineering, and he worked with the fellow named Norm Clark and somebody we've heard quite a bit, Steve Cordick. They were doing designs, and of course he helped them out on sort of managing those designs and building up the Whitewoods and working with those senior designers. Now that's that's pretty awesome, right? To be working, like, could you imagine going to Stern today and, and working with Steve Ritchie on building his Whitewoods? That would be just awesome. Yeah, Steve Kordick was Barry Ausler's mentor. 
I, be- I believe Steve Kordick, he had three or four games at his house, and they were all Barry Ausler games. So this is where you learn to read schematics, right, which is a, is a, its own uh, adventure, I'll tell you, as a person who's not um, mechanically inclined. And when I sort of learned to read some schematics that it was like, oh, my God, I this is like a whole nother world, and I've unlocked like a special power. The EM schematics are fun. Yeah, see, I haven't even looked at those, and I have no, 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 ugh. It took me long enough to friggin' figure out, you know, the start button on a, you know, an old Gottlieb. So I, I don't need to even look at a stepper unit. So this is, uh, this is pre-solid state. He's working there during the EM era. And it must have been difficult when they started transitioning from that EM to solid state uh, era, specifically for these older designers. EM was a totally different animal. We had mentioned in our Steve Ritchie episode that this is when they started to sort of look for these new designers, these younger sort of fellows that that maybe didn't have the bad habits or had a different vision or or could use their mind in a different way. And this is where they started to look for, for new designers to come into Williams. And you can really see that time, that change when it comes to design, can't you, Ron? So Barry Ausler says... The transition wasn't really as ha- the transition wasn't really hard as far as game design. It was trying to do repairs on it. I know basic electronics, but I can't really fix a circuit board or try to find out what the problem was. I'd know how to change a part, but I wouldn't know how to troubleshoot it. Mechanical games I could go through blindfolded. He's the the person at the factory working with these senior designers, and even Barry, uh, uh, the young gun, is is struggling with how to actually troubleshoot issues and. Imagine spending like your whole like 30 year career in an EM world where not only could you troubleshoot and fix things blindfolded like like Steve Kordick, for example, but you could also build a machine blindfolded. Well, well, Barry can't do either of those in this era, and he has only been in the industry for a few years. So Barry did his own design and Kordick said, go ahead and do a Whitewood. The design went on to become Phoenix. Yes, Phoenix. What a bizarre backlash. Yes, so this is a fantasy bird <laughs> yes. theme. Uh, August of 1978, 6,198 units, which is a pretty good seller by today's standards. That is a very good seller. Design, of course, by Barry Ausler. Art by Constantino and Janine Mitchell. I recently heard... Was it Janine or, or Jeannie? So so they didn't call him Constantino. They called him Connie. Oh, yeah, they always call him Connie. Yeah, so I yep. just I had, I heard them talking about this Connie on another Mitchell. podcast. Yep. And I'm like, who is that? And then I realized who it was. And uh, Paul DeSalt with Sound and Software. So in 2009, Barry was asked by Pinball Blog in 2009 what his defining moment in pinball was. And Barry would say that it was seeing his first game roll off the assembly line. That was certainly one of the highlights of his career, and that has to be an amazing feeling. I would agree. Have you? You've played some Phoenix. I've not. Played oh, I've Phoenix. played a lot of Phoenix. You've played a lot of Phoenix. So it has a center drop bank, which is a big deal. This is what has come up a couple times on a couple of different interviews, uh, podcasts, old written documents. That for some reason, Barry and the like uh, were super proud of the center drop target rule. Barry would say, they, Cordic and Clark, really like the drop bank rule. 
We worked on making scoring. Once you knocked the targets down, you couldn't get them back up until you went over the rollover lanes. They liked the tunnel shot. It was different. Here's the new person coming in with some newer ideas, and the, the Cordix and Clarks of the world are like, yeah, hey, that's pretty cool. That's kind of unique. You know that Phoenix intensifies competition and fun for sizzling profits. Ooh. I love these uh, flyers. Sizzling profits. Yeah, that backlash with the re- weird Birdman thing. It's like he's like X-rayed. Con- Con- Connie Mitchell did some weird backlashes. There's some really weird. And we're not talking like Bally 1981 weird. But, you know, if you stop and like, what the heck is that? Hey, you've won. I have to play this game now. It's so weird looking. How about light the fuse with Phoenix? 25 cents is the profit way. Mm-hmm. So this is the time when you're moving sort of from EM 10 cent games into quarter games. And you need something cool and fancy to get that extra 15 cents. And I'll tell you what, Phoenix was the one. I love the lady on the uh, on the flyer here. She's got these like puffy 70s pants. Oh, yeah. And heels. Like brown, leathery heels. Pants are like super high on the waist. Great hair. Great hair, though. Super, super cool. I think by looking at Phoenix, I would put a quarter in Phoenix. You know what I mean? Like I would at least give it a go. It, it, it's, it's drawn me in by its look because it's got this super cool like bonus countdown thing. And of course, it's got Orbit Spinner. Yeah. And fire. Lots of fire. Fire. Barry. Barry's got a lot of fire in a lot of his career. Mm-hmm. And this is where it started. So the tunnel that they're speaking to is on the left side. So there's drop bank on the left and on the right, a four target drop bank. On the left side, that's where that tunnel is. And it, there's the plastic kind of covers it over. And you kind of get in that tunnel and go all the way up and hit the target in the back. That looks like a fun shot. Fun shot. So the Birdman. Do you want to talk a little bit about the Birdman back last? He's a dude who's, like, ripped, but he has, like, the claw legs, you know, like a bird. And he's got a bird's head, but he has hair. It's very bizarre. And kind of like hands. It's kind of like hands and muscles. And the two ladies in the front, of course, are like, oh, Birdman. Well, there's a third one off to the side doing a bizarre split thing. Huh. Looks like she's on a pommel horse or something. Pommel horse. That's what it looks like. And then there's other birds and yeah. There's a whole lot going on. He's he's Birdman, all right. Yeah, the the ladies love the Birdman. It's I don't know. It's weird. It's very cool. I I, I you know I again I it's it's drawn me in. I think it's done what it's needed to do. And I I, I think uh, I think it was probably a pretty pretty successful pin considering it sold uh, six thousand almost seven thousand units. That's a good seller. You know what I mean? Like that's a good seller, especially at that time, right? Williams was was kind of doing that hot tip. They were they were late to implementing the technology in comparison to somebody like uh, Bally, who really just right out of the gate were like, oh yeah, this is what we do and. And you could see that it took a little bit of time for Williams to figure out what to actually do. I don't know. That's more of an opinion. I would say the first couple of uh, the Williams games that were solid state, they put the the chimes in and even like a a ticker thing so it would sound like the reels. 
just to try not to alienate their their audience. They want to do it carefully, right? Yeah. You don't want to go all in. But they dropped all that within a year or two, and they're they're yeah. doing full all out awesome sound packages, etc. Now the game right after Phoenix was from the new guy at Williams, one of the other new designers they're bringing in to sort of refresh the design team, and that's of course Steve Ritchie's Flash, and that would just destroy with 19,000 units. So, <laughs> I mean, when we go, eh, 6,000 is pretty good. You know, six, six is not 19. No. It's a, it's a big deal. It's a big deal. So then they crack out Barry again. And they're like, Barry, do your magic. We've got a bunch of leftover banana flippers. <laughs> we need you to use them. So that's when they do time warp. So what are banana flippers? Oh, God. Banana flippers. Oh, there's there's no explanation. They they literally are they they are curved. They're curved flippers. They literally look like a banana. So they named them banana flippers, and they were used on Disco Fever. They must have had a lot of stock left over, and I don't know why Disco Fever sold quite well. So they must have they must have bought a lot of those. Thought that was going to be the the next thing was going to be banana flippers. It was it was seventy eight where uh, Disco Fever came out. This is September of 79. Time Warp sells 8,879 units. Uh, uh, Constantino and Janine do the the art again, software Paul DeSalt. So same team. <laughs> I'll tell you what. If Stern came out with a game with banana flippers and it sold like almost 10,000 units nowadays, friggin' every game would have banana flippers. Barry Ausler says they... Williams and the operators said that women really liked the banana flippers because they could cradle the ball. You could take back shots and other stuff with them. Management wanted them on there. I didn't. Uh, I, I could confirm he didn't want them on there because he told me he didn't want them on there. The funny thing is if you put regular flippers on it, it shoots really good. Yeah. The um, programmer for Stern, Tim Sexton, owned a time war for a few years. This is funny, right? It's like it's like these 1950s guys that are like, how do we get the ladies to like the pinball? And the, even the quote itself, which I think is probably very accurate, right, as a quote, which is basically saying, like, the ladies who aren't very good at pinball uh, like this kind of flipper because they can um, – play better like come on, like that is so demeaning right like oh it's 1979 man yeah right it's like oh they're so they're so dainty they can't they can't flip like a man it's like oh that makes me so mad when i hear that stuff so it's it's got some decent shots this game but it's difficult to sort of aim the shots because we're all so used to it like a regular style flipper there these shots are nowhere yeah, it, where they usually are, if, like not even remotely. Close. If you, it, it was designed for regular flippers. So if you have this game, just put regular flippers on it. It'll play good. And just remember, Williams Time Warp, the profit time bomb. Oh my goodness! You could do a whole podcast on just these awesome flyer things. Where the future and the past collide, the action is unreal. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> Love it. It's like nothing like uh, over promise and under deliver. <laughs> you know what I mean? Oh, they, they sold so many of these. You see these all the time for sale, which is just a travesty. Oh, I disagree. Put regular. Oh, there we go. There's a picture of it with regular flippers. It's got five pop bumpers. Five Take pop that, bumpers. Pat Lawler. Take that. We got multiple banks, drop targets, nice orbit shot up top. 
very close. Those drop targets, there's a set of three on the left. There's a set of five kind of in the center. Very close to you. Super close to the flippers. So that, you know, that's got some, some serious action. And man, it's got some hungry out lanes, especially the one on the right. Cause there's like an orbit with a, with a gate on it. And that, that just wants to go right into the top of that sling and out the right out lane. Very cool game. It's very EM inspired, I would say. What do you think about what do you think about the colors in the back glass here? What's what's going on here? What's the story? Uh, the the back glass? Or you, you, uh, I'm thinking more about the nudity on the back glass. Oh my! Time warp, I think, might well uh, excluding European games because they God knows what they did. They they put anything on the, on the game when it comes to nudity. But I uh, they have the Da Vinci's. Dude, what was it called? Uh, oh, you got it right here. Vit- Vitruvian Man. Is that what it's called? I probably said that wrong. Uh, yeah, maybe the only depiction of male nudity from a p- pinball machine manufacturer. Yes, he is nude. Like the one where the naked guy's doing the jumping yes, jacks. Full frontal. It is right on the back glass. But it's art. It's classical art. So It's one of those deals you never notice it until someone brings it up and then you can't unsee it. It's like right there in your face. And, and I'll tell you what, you thought you know, some of uh, Dave Christensen's Bally art where it was very cold where, where people were when that was drawn. Well, I'll tell you what, Da Vinci made that one. Whew, it was a chilly day. I was in the pool. <laughs> That's time warp. So it's got like different eras of time and then some weird guy in the middle who looks like he's from Monty Python. He look, he's sleepy. It's very sleepy. Yeah, he looks like a stone. In, yeah, he looks like he's in uh, Holy Grail, and he's stone. He's like, where's the, where's the, the Grail, dude? Where's man? Where's the Doritos, man? It's got dinosaurs. I mean, it's a time warp. You're going through time, and this is like that pre uh, Jurassic Park dinosaurs. So they all look weirdly cartoony, and they're always green. Always green. Yeah, because that because everybody knew the dinosaurs were green, right? I they did. And the dude from the back glass is also in the center of the play field. Yep. Less stoned looking, but more gropey looking. He's got his big hands coming at you. Oh, God. I didn't even notice the hands. Yeah. Yeah, he's there. He's just like, hey there. Let me, let me give you a hug. I wonder if he's like the Time Lord or something. I don't know. Wait a minute. Time Lord. This is, this is, this is a pre-Doctor Who right here. You, I'll tell you what, man. You, you, you could have worked at Williams. Let's go, let's go back to banana flippers here for a second. Oh, no, let's not say we did. So who thought of banana flippers, right? Whose idea was banana flippers? Well, I couldn't, through all my research, I looked in the pinball compendium. I looked on uh, various blogs and interviews, and nobody would say that it was their idea. Nor would anybody remember whose idea it was. So my assumption is that it was just such a bad idea, nobody wanted ownership, and everybody just wanted to forget about it. And then people brought it up in the 1990s at like conventions or shows or expos. And they're like, you know what? I haven't thought about those crappy things in 30 years. I can't remember. <laughs> Mike Stroll, the president of Williams at the time, he he may have pressed for the curved flippers. But of course, that was not like him to force a feature, especially if it was controversial. He gave the designers maximum freedom when it came to designing the games. So it was maybe the designer who came up with banana flippers. Now, Steve Ritchie would make comments uh, saying things like Mike could play very, very well. And he was always deeply involved in the engineering aspect at Williams. So it might have 
been his idea, but we can't really figure out whose idea it was. But I'll tell you, I'll ask you now, Ron, do you think banana flippers were worth it? Um, I think they were like, yeah, those are revolutionary. I don't think they were worth it, but I don't think they, I mean, you have Disco Fever sold a ton and Time Warp sold like 8,000. So they didn't really hurt the sales, did they? Crazy. Good old Steve Ritchie says, I adopted a philosophy about flipper placement after first observing pinball play in the early 70s at Atari. Games that had odd flipper placements generally did not make as much money as games that had more normal arrangements. There are exceptions, including Captain Fantastic, but even there, the basic two lowest flippers are in a very normal position. And if anyone knows about weird flipper positioning, it's those Atari games. They were a mess. Now we're going to get into, I would say, probably one of the Barry Ausler's best known games, and that's Gorgar. December of 1979. This is like a fantasy Dungeons and Dragons Satan theme. Yeah, I always took it as just Satan. The devil. <laughs> it's it's a Williams System Six. So it's a System Six, like say, well, firepower would be that comes it's later. It's fourteen thousand units, which is huge. That's huge. That is a massive, massive selling unit, and this must have been just Garrett. Uh, he must have been over the moon, Barry. Like art by the the con uh, by the Mitchells again. Sound. Eugene Jarvis this time did sound, who's a newcomer to Williams, and the other bits of the software by Paul DeSalt. So we can see here that Barry has his go-to team, which is pretty interesting when it comes to this stuff. Dan Barlow from Facebook says, Gorgar was kind of scary when I played it as a kid in the 1970s. The heartbeat sound effect added to the overall feel of the game. It ended up becoming my first pin. Gorgar was one of the first pinball machines I remember as a little kid. It was one of the games... That was in the tavern my father would go to. They usually only have one pinball machine there, and they'd have it there for a while and switch it out. Gorgar was one of the ones that was there the longest. And you had the same reaction as Dan? I love the back glass. I think that's Connie Mitchell's best back glass. Wow. Uh, uh, it's freaking Satan. Fire and stuff. I mean, how can you not like Satan? Yeah. In the, the heartbeat thing, the, the sound on that thing is incredible. Flash was the first game with that dynamic background sound, and that was why it sold so many units, right? It hit this drone, and as you dropped the targets down and, and got more points, sort of the tension built, and that drone got more high-pitched and more exciting. A lot of people have played Meteor. Meteor's got that dynamic background sound. Mm-hmm. Well, Gorgar went a step further and really killed it when it came to its its dynamic background sound. So rather than a tone or a noise or a, this just droning on and on and on and on where the pitch got higher, it was like a heartbeat. Yep. And that heartbeat got faster and faster and faster. And it it was it was as close to a heartbeat as you could get, I would say, in that era when it came to sound. And man, oh man, it was it was Eugene Jarvis that that just killed it with this machine. This was, of course, as you had mentioned, the first game with speech. And I'm sure many people are very disappointed to hear that Disco Fever in 1978 was the first Williams game engineered with speech. And in fact, a talking prototype was presented at the AMOA show in Chicago that year. Yeah, they, they did that stuff a lot. Uh, Bally had a lost world that they put like a tape deck or something in so it would have speech. So, so it looked like it was the first because they knew Gorgar was coming. 
they, they, they manufacturers they do all kinds of stuff like that so eugene jarvis did this did the effects here but he didn't do the the rules programming of the game and this was mostly because he was still working with Steve Ritchie to finish Firepower. Uh, because there was no other programmers that would work with Steve Ritchie, Eugene straddled both projects. Hmm. We've heard that before. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Gorgar was the first production game with speech and was first shown at the AMOA Expo held November 8th through the 11th, 1979. Barry Alser says at the AMOA show, it was so loud that Sam Stern came over to tell us to turn it down because no one could hear his games. <laughs> that's an awesome awesome quote that is awesome turn it down you young whippersnapper you're, you're impeding our sales over here we're trying to sell mammary lane barry assumed that these sales were mostly due to the sound system and the speech they designed yeah i mean that's that's got to draw you in right like if everything else there is just sort of making like or boop 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 at gottlieb and then you hear this thing not only did it have an amazing background sound but it it talked it said words in english that you could understand and it's seven words and the way williams would do it they would just record the individual words and then just splice them together so it would never sound completely smooth yeah he so did they did he didn't say sentences no he just said it wasn't words. like valley with full sentences but they had um the, the seven words were beat you gorgar speaks hurt me and got so you'd hear things like, me hurt, you know, Gorgar speaks, me got you. It's antiquated, but at the same time, you're like, man, that's kind of cool. I always wondered who did the voice. I could never find who did the voice. I, I asked Steve Ritchie, and he couldn't remember. He thought they might have hired someone, like a voice actor. Yeah, now the Amusement Review, a magazine back in the day, in its January and February number 198 the talking feature, they said, was actually optional and cost $70 more to, to the operator. But the majority of the units was ordered with the sound package. So they just decided to make everyone with the sound package. Yeah, I ne- I've never seen Because the, the speech is a, a second board that's connected to the soundboard. I think with a ribbon cable. I'm trying to remember off the top of my head. Or just a connector. But it's like a little separate mini board. So they'd have to literally not have the mini board in there if they were going to not give them the speech. Because, of course, this is a new technology, there was a little bit of a bug in the first ROM code. So a ROM is like the chip that plugs into the board that sort of tells one part of the machine or the other what to do. If you inserted coins after the speech, it would work. But if you were like putting coins in kind of like during the speech, it would get all confused. Yeah, I remember seeing the sticker on some of the games. It was like a picture of Satan. And he says, wait until I stop talking before inserting coins. Yep. <laughs> it was so polite, Satan. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like... There was a record, for, for, for those who don't remember those, they would come with a, a, like a, a little, like a 45 of just him talking. Weird. That was like the original Deadpool. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it was basically the same thing they did for Deadpool. They did for Gorgar, but with an album. So how would you describe that backlash, Ron? One of the great backlashes. I mean, I'm still confused, though, if... So you got the Satan guy. Basically, you have an altar with a woman on it, wearing next to nothing, of course, because 70s and all, you know. So then we have the Gorgar, and then we have these other dudes. One is, like, picking up the girl. I can't figure out if she's if he's saving her or if he's one of the Gorgar's minions. He must be saving her, because there's the other guy in the background who's, like, fighting. He's running with a sword. So I, it's just like the Paragon backlash I was always confused about. Is the dude... 
like attacking the woman or saving her? I, I never could figure that out. Or is he, is the lion, is, is he riding the lion or is he attacking the lion? This is similar. I'm always trying to figure out exactly what's going on in this backlash. The, the detail in the backlash is quite impressive because this is before they're doing that sort of bally uh, four layer sort of screen printing backlashes. This is all like lines. Right, like this is this is some pretty impressive. If you lineup. think the backlash is good, look at the playfield. Yeah, so let's let's talk about the playfield a little bit here. So the lower playfield, it's that traditional kind of Italian bottom playfield. Um, it's got the the guy who looks like he's fighting Gorgar, and the lady is like, "No, please save me because I'm a stereotype of a woman." And then there's another guy in the background who's fighting. Now this is an awesome awesome you know lower play field design like there's a lot of detail going on there's in a this. ton of detail it's imp- it's super impressive and lots of fire so you know it's good yeah so then kind of halfway up the play field you've got your stand-up targets and then you've got a capture hole on the left which is really cool and then a set of dr- offset drop targets a set of three and then you got an orbit spinner yeah but you, this orbit spinner isn't really the best of orbit spinners, right? It's kind of a clunky. That's good. I, it's, it's good when I play it. Well, it's because you you know you're you're the top one thousand player here. No, I'm talking about playing other people's games. But yeah, uh, it has a weird spinner rule where the the bonus has to be at a certain level between so and so and so and so, and then it's lit. So once you go above that bonus level, it turns off. Yeah, the upper play field. This is where it gets exciting, okay? So there's Gore set of three bank drop targets on the left, and Gar is an offset target kind of in the middle, lower middle of the playfield. But in the back, there's a snake pit. So what's so cool about this snake it pit? It has a magnet, and it stops the ball dead and then flashes a – well, they didn't have – I don't think it's a flasher. Or or just a, they blinked a light bulb, and it's like, me hurt, me got you. Great effect. I would say the worst part – and the, the most disappointing thing about Gorgar is, well, the fact that it's Satan. And I mean, that's not going to fly in my house, sadly. But but this is before Firepower. And Firepower had two amazing things about it. One of them was multiball. But the really amazing thing was lane change at the top. So when you shoot that orbit spinner, or you get up into the pops in Gorgar and you roll over the lane in the top, you can't switch the ABC lanes. Uh, you're one of those whiny type players, huh? I am indeed. So you get it up there and you're like, you gotta, you know, you gotta nudge it, nudge it, and not tilt, and you gotta get it up there again, and it's it's like, oh god. Isn't it great how that's the way it was, and then they added lane change, and now in 2021, we have a game like Avengers where you have the inlaying lights that you can't move, they're not controlled, and you have to hit things to move them. Ugh. I love it. Or you have games with skill shots with the light you can't move, so you have to actually try to get it in the right lane using nudging and skill. What a, what a surprise. What do you think about the promotional poster? Now, if you go onto the Internet Pinball Database at IPDB.org, you can look at all this stuff. Those links are in the show notes. I'm... Thinking they hired a model for this one. She's wearing um, a fur top, but the top is missing the middle part. Yes, it is. As well as the sides where the legs are. I'm not entirely sure how how that... It stays on? I, I'm sure there's tape or something. 
But what does that have to do with pinball? Uh, she's the woman from the back west. That's what I was assuming. And we keep calling him Satan. I mean, his name is Gorgar. It's, that's his name. Enter the lair of Gorgar only if you dare, because that rhymes. Make Gorgar cry out. Challenge the snake hole. Ooh, that's that's weird. Escape from the monster's clutches. Do you know when it when it comes to pinball profit, Gorgar speaks of monster earnings. Oh God, <laughs> Williams, Williams. I love it. So cheesy. Uh, it's like watching a television newscast here. With I the mean, puns if, and the... if 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 any of the manufacturers listen to this podcast, which I'm sure, of course, they do. They want to learn about history. We need cool flyers again with just really cheesy quotes on them. Please, yeah, bring it back, please. So where do you think the design concept came for making a, you know, a uh, monster fire Satan-y thing? Well, Barry would say the design was the artist's decision. Said the team wanted something different. It wasn't supposed to be demonic, but at the time, Dungeons and Dragons were coming out. We wanted to cash in on that with the hero saving the woman from the beast. I guess that answers my question. So he is supposed to be saving her. Hmm. Gorgar and his stance were inspired by an illustration called The Underworld by Boris... Vallejo? Yeah, there you go. Oh, okay. Link in the show notes. Yeah, so check that out. That's It's very cool, because if you see this picture, oh, it is clearly a ripoff, because we always joke about Stern ripping off or, or looking for, quote-unquote, inspiration from other designers. Well, this did very similar and, and very close, but it's, you know, it's... um. A lot of people talk about Gorgar as it would have done even better if it wasn't sort of the way it was. What, Satan? And Yeah, George Gomez would say that, right? George Gomez worked on a game called Satan's Hall. In the, in the South, it would have been, it probably didn't sell well. So imagine how many more units it would have been if he were blue instead of red. Red. Well, did you know German metal band Halloween's 1985 album Walls of Jericho included a track titled Gorgar? That symbolized the machine as a form of gambling addiction. Barry, after this massive hit, he figured, how do I humble myself? And he said, let's do laser ball. Well, they had to do wide bodies. This is, this is when Williams was on their whole wide body kick. And by wide bodies, really wide bodies. This was, this is, and I've seen, I've seen a lot of these laser balls around. And I don't know why I see so many of these. Because they made a lot of them. And people just want to get rid of them, I guess. I, I I don't know. It's outer space fantasy theme. Sells 4,500 units. This is a Williams System 6. This is, as you said, wide body. Again, the Mitchells on art. Sound and software by Eugene Jarvis. Now, <laughs> this is, people are like, oh, you know, we don't have enough bowling themes anymore in, in pinball. Well, I'll tell you what. Back then, bowling theme pinball machines were all the rage. And this was originally called Williams Lanes, and it was, in fact, a bowling theme. And originally, the people featured in the game, so the art in the game, were people who worked at Williams. And you can actually see some of the prototype in the IPDB website. So you can see the pre-production back glass. There's like a Burt Reynolds-y looking fella. That's who I thought it was. It's Mike Stroll. Oh my God, Mike Stroll. He looks like he looks like Burt Reynolds. Mike Stroll, the company president, looked like Burt Reynolds. With two models, Nancy Rudd and uh, Nancy Tritt. The the dark haired man on the left of the back glass is Connie Mitchell. 
the green shirt person, uh, uh, the the green shirt man on the right is the engineering manager, uh, Chuck Bleach. The red shirt man on the right is Tony Ramuni, who looks creepy. So it was Williams Light. It was it had like a pre-production. Everything was ready to go, and it was bowling theme. It was called Williams Lanes. Let's go for something different. So Connie pushed for laser ball, which is lasers in the future thing. (laughs) What? Well, if you look at the play field, so if you look at this game in the middle. Bowling pins. Yes, they're still there. So you can see that it was, in fact, bowling theme. This also has this odd ladies makeup that was very reminiscent of this time. It was like this futuristic makeup thing around the eyes. And it was like colors and wings and things. I I don't know this, this game, it looks like it was changed uh, at the last minute. And it really does come across. It does come across in its design as well as its art where it's just like, Hey, quick, get something out. Fill the line. Well, especially since the same woman is on the game ten times. They just use the same... They just printed her over and over and over again. Did you know that laser ball turns cosmic energy into cash? Oh, oh no. That's a bad one. Extra flipper for extra scoring. Front-end programming ease. That's interesting. That basically just means you open a coin door and you can change the settings. Streak through the stars. Activate the force field. It, it's it's actually in quotes, so it's like activate the force, force field. field. Trademarked. <laughs> Laser beams radiate high scoring power. Oh, super good, super good. It's I don't know. It's kind of neat. Doesn't do it for me. It, you know, I I don't think I'd put a quarter in this. Oh, you should put a quarter in everything. Give it a try, and then play Stellar Wars instead if you need to play the ultra wide body. Yeah, I, uh, orbit spinners, yeah. So it's got me there. If you can make it up there, it's so far up. Got a lot of drop targets. That's cool. Everybody loves drop targets, except for Stern. But those pop-uppers look familiar. Those pop-upper caps. Very cool. It's it's a neat little, you know, it's okay, I guess. I mean, if it's, it, the, I think the coolest feature, um, because you got to fill in sort of the bottom of the play field. Again, Barry was, I guess, pretty good at trying to keep that sort of traditional bottom of the play field. But on the left and on the right, it's got these like capture holes on the outside of the out lanes, which is kind of neat. And it kind of kicks it back up, up the sort of into the middle, into the, into the play field, which is, which is kind of cool. It's kind of different, mm-hmm. but it's, it's kind of, it's a bit of a mess if you ask me. Such an opinion for a game he's never played. Exactly. Fail. Eugene Jarvis, of course, uh, this was his, his first game where he did everything besides just the sound. This is where he did all the rules and all that stuff. And, uh, he fit a lot of stuff into such a small sound chip when it came to that system six chipset. So he had made synthetic chimes actually. Eugene said, uh, this was a management decision. It was like management would say, oh my God, those sounds are strange. People want their chimes. Yeah, Eugene was all about those sort of strange sounds, right? Like sometimes they're like, let's just, now that we've done something really cool, let's kind of go back to basics, chill it out a little bit. You know, Flash has the same thing. Just, so I, I think they're talking about on, on the System 6 soundboards, they have like, a, actually, I think it's System 4 has them too. There's like a little toggle switch. 
you can toggle between the regular sound package and like the much simpler sound package. It kind of gets more sort of basic and less. Yeah, I didn't even know this existed because I never heard a game on the simpler sound package. Yeah, so this is we've had a dip in sales now, right? We've had that crazy peak of kind of Gorgar, Flash, like forty five hundred units. Uh, Stellar War selling fifty five hundred. So you can see there's a bit of a dip in sales here over this peak. That's when we get into July of nineteen eighty with Scorpion, Another which super is super wide body. Another super wide body fantasy theme sells 2,000 units. Uh, the Mitchells, uh, it's only Constantino, Connie this time with Tony Ramuni, and software and sound by Larry DeMar, who's a new team member here swinging in. So Scorpion, uh, you know, this is the second wide body that Larry, uh, that Barry, this is the second wide body that Barry has done. And we've mentioned this a few times in the past that Atari had started making wide body machines. That's all they made. All the other manufacturers were super concerned that maybe they were on to the next big thing that, that they didn't want to miss out. So they started making wide bodies, but then they quickly realized they weren't fun. <laughs> it depends. <laughs> it depends. Such a blanket statement. Barry Ausler says, I was just trying to make another follow-up to the last wide body I made. I was just trying to do some other unusual stuff. Atari was doing things like Middle Earth or something at the time. We were just trying to come up with a similar theme. The only reason I came up with this is that someone else was doing it, and we didn't want to be left in the dust if they take off. Atari was doing nothing but wide bodies. If you don't do one and they take off, you'll be the last one. So there you go. It's just they, they had to do something. So they're like, let's try. Let's give her a go. Scorpion is, is a fun game. I always like Scorpion. Scorpion is actually the name. There's a big lizard Loch Ness monster looking thing in it. So you figure, oh, that's Scorpion. But it's not. It's actually the name of the ship that's going after the lizard thing. It's like a two-headed creature. But the name of the ship is actually Scorpion. Yeah, it's it's almost like a cigar boat. <laughs> Right. You'd see in like Miami. It's kind of cool, but the colors are all weird, right? They're it's, weird. It's, it's got the purple sky, then the green character and the blue at the bottom. What it's did a, the flyer say for this one? Two headed earnings or something like that? Yeah. <laughs> Is it going to say? Let's see. Let's see here. Time. Time always precious seconds. Seconds that call for supreme strategy. Seconds that can mean the ultimate victory or devastating defeat. Come aboard the Scorpion. There's no time to lose. And, and the reason that's all worded that way, th this game had a unique feature. This is all Larry DeMar. When you start multiball, a timer will start that counts how long you were in multiball. And the longer you can be in multiball, the more points you get at the end of the ball. And you wow. can't, so you're thinking like, okay, I'll just trap then. When you trap, the timer stops. That's why it's oh. really, it's really neat programming for 1980. Larry DeMar. He was able to put something in there. So if you don't see switch hits happening and you're just trying to hold the ball, the timer will stop. Because the first time I ever played this game and saw that, it's like, oh, I'll just hold the ball. Right? And it'll, it'll just keep going up. Like, nope. Barry, again, makes that more or less traditional bottom of the play field. Now, the slings are much wider apart, but he does have that in-lane, out-lane traditional kind of flowing into the flippers from the outside. But, man, that is one heck of a trip from that out lane all the way down in there. That is like, you better stop and have a beer when that, when that ball's coming down And there. the upper left, I think, is his first go-around with a 
design element he'd use again and again. It looks a little familiar. You need to play Solar Fire, which we'll get to later. Uh, Grand Lizard. It's like a little part in the upper part of the play field. So it's, it's, in this case, it's not even like an upper play field. It's just the upper part of the play field. And you got two flippers, and you just shoot at drop targets. And there's a really cool spinner on the left, which probably has to be the worst orbit spinner of all time. Oh. Except for those System 1 god leaves, I guess. But this little design element he will reuse. I think, I, you know, if you think of the Steve Ritchie sort of upper, you know, loop shot, you know, the, the Barry Ausler upper part play field is kind of his thing for a little while. I mean, of course, it, it wasn't like that in the 90s, but his earlier career, he's used that quite a few times. Yeah, it's kind of, it's, it's a neat little game. You know, I would, I would, you know, I'd probably play it, I guess. I really like cigar boats. So cigar boat theme. Hey guys, as a quick heads up, I wanted to let you know that in my real life, I'm David the Advice Guy. At Dennis Financial, we aren't investment advisors or insurance agents. I always thought that sounded terrible. We want to provide you with sound financial advice. In fact, we want to provide you with investment and insurance advice for life, and we take that honor very seriously. Do you know individuals who received financial advice for 10 years have two times the financial assets of unadvised individuals? For example, you've got mortgage insurance at the bank, right? Well, did you know a 40-year-old non-smoker can save $30 a month every month for 20 years just from shopping around for a more competitive rate? Now, just imagine what a pinhead like you could do with that extra money. Toppers and shooter rods, anyone? If you're looking for a more human dimension to your financial advice, Dennis Financial Inc. has you covered with advisors licensing most Canadian provinces. Contact me via email at david at dennisfinancial.net for a free rate quote and a copy of our Value of Advice ebook, or check out dennisfinancial.ca. Insurance solutions provided by Dennis Financial Inc., Canadian residents only. Now, the next game... You know, this is this is where we're getting into some strange things. This is this is Algar. Oh man, was this Barry? Was this a Barry game? This was this was a game by Tony Kramer, and it's a, a fantasy monster theme. It's September of 1980. It's a Williams Six A. It's a thing. <laughs> Three uh, 349 units, and it is a wide body. Well deserved. The Mitch, the Mitchells doing the art. Sound by Christina D'Onofrio, Paul DeSalt on software. This was originally started by Claude Fernandez, who you will remember from, from uh, Blackout, as well as switching teams over to Bally to make Flash Gordon and stealing Steve Ritchie's ideas. Per, per Steve Ritchie. We're not saying it, he did. Yes, right. And, of course, then this was passed off to Tony Kramer, who is a, a another sort of Williams guy who pops up from time to time in the late, in the early solid state era, who just kind of swings in and does a design and swings out. Al, why do I bring Algar up? Well, I mean, it was the next one in production. The other thing is it's got very low production numbers, which makes it kind of neat. It's one of only two System 6A games. Yes. So it has seven-digit displays even though it's a System 6 game. And it has one of the, and I probably should say, uh, Alien Poker is the other one, in case people are shouting right now. What's the other one? Uh, it has a backlash that is um, the original Lion Man, I guess you could say. This was this was the original Lion Man. And, and actually, he's part of the Gar family. And the joke around Williams was that this was Al, 
who was Gore's brother. Gorgar. So you had Algar and Gorgar were brothers. Al, because Al was such a failure, the entire Gar family just died. <laughs> that was the joke around with the Williams factory at the time. This is one of the few games that I just hate. Oh my goodness, that's a hot take. But it's got two spinners. It's got two spinners. My podcast mate, Bruce, from our uh, Slam Till podcast. There, I did my, my plug. He likes this game for some reason. I don't know why. It has the little space on the right in lane, just like um, Future Spa does. Right into the drain. Right into the drain, but Future Spa is a much better game. Yeah, it's and, got no and, Italian bottom. It's got the it, it's got the flipper that's right on the sling, and then next to that is like a literally like a switch in a hole that just is right down the out lane. And it's got this. You, I don't even know how you explain. There's just a term for it, but you hit like a captive ball, and it knocks another ball back, and it's like a grid. I think they use they use the same thing on. Um, what was it? Big Bang Bar has like the same thing. It's got a couple of neat design elements. One of them is that there's a three bank drop target, a three three drop target bank. To the right of that, there's like a like a, a 90 degree sort of turn. And then that kind of goes across the play field and down the left side. And then that acts as sort of the left in lane, which is really weird. You got to look at the pictures to actually to do this. And I know we're an auditory medium and we spend a lot of time talking about how stuff is. But I'm trying to paint you a word picture here, folks. Calm down. What, what does the flyer for this say? Don't buy it? <laughs> I don't have a flyer for this. Exactly. One. They didn't it even It was so bother. bad they didn't even print flyers. <laughs> so who was Tony Kramer? So we've brought him up a couple of times. And I think this is a great opportunity to bring up somebody else who swung in and out of Williams' while it was dying in the early 80s. Who is Tony Kramer? Tony Kramer was nicknamed Colonel Nutsy after his wristwatch had stopped working intermittently for the last time. He screamed some profanity and threw the watch as hard as he could at a plaster wall in Williams Engineering. <laughs> yeah, so he was, he was a bit of a character, I guess, was the best way to say it. Steve Ritchie says, The watch flew apart in a hundred pieces and we all laughed so hard, Tony included. He was nuts. He could create pinball designs faster than anyone else at Williams. Tony was a great guy who made the best of a life through a tough childhood and a love for Steve Kordak, who mentored him as a game designer and treated him like a son. So he was he was well, you could tell by this quote, he was well liked. Uh, he was he was a good dude despite a tough childhood, which I couldn't find any information on, but we'll take his word on it. A lot of people said that that Algar failed because of Black Knight. Black Knight was about to come out. It was the big smash that would be another Richie title. Well, do you think that that was the reason that Algar failed? Uh, no, I have to agree with Steve Richie. He says, I think Al was just a dud of a game. <laughs> there you go. So it's just a bit of a dud. It was, you know, it's kind of a crappy game. So because it didn't sell at all and it was kind of crappy, they just killed it and moved on to the next thing. So Tony would actually pass away in 1992 after he was struck by a car in front of a Chicago bar, the bar where he, along with Steve Ritchie and many of the other folks in pinball at the time, would often hang out. His death was a tragic one, and one where those in the industry who knew him took it quite hard. Steve Ritchie would say that he actually very much misses Tony Kramer, so, you know, that would, I, I would say, speak volumes in how uh, good a person Tony was. 
All right. So this is where we get into the battle of the buy levels, I'd like to call it. So you've got Black Knight that comes out and completely changes the game. Then you've got Bally's Flash Gordon. And now everything's got to be a buy level. And then everything's like, it's like, oh my God, wide bodies. Everything's got to be a wide body. And it's like, oh my God, everything's got to be a buy level. So it's like, it's, it's funny how the industry is that way. If you want to learn more about Black Knight and buy levels and things like that and sort of the development, you can check out our Steve Ritchie episode, which was the pilot episode, or you could check out our Bally 1981 episode if you want to talk about Flash Gordon. We've talked about those before, so now we're going to dive into Jungle Lord, which is Barry Ausler's buy level game. It is a fantasy theme from February of 81. It is a Williams System 7. It sells 6,000 units. So sales have picked back up again. It is a, a bi-level sort of narrow standard body game. The Mitchells on art and sound and software by Larry DeMar. This is a is a cool game. Now, it has Magna saves on the outside, right? Which is an innovation that Steve Ritchie had in his Black Knight game. Yep, but it's done better. It's done so much better. Basically, it doesn't just stay on like you tap the thing and it just you just get it out of the outlane it pulses it so you can kind of flick it back into play or you can kind of hold it to really kind of grab it from going out of the the outlane this is a, a unique art package for a few reasons there was that movie at the time like blue lagoon wasn't that a movie that was a movie with brooke shields and whoever the guy was brooke shields who was also in the pinball movie so there's a pinball connection. Yes, exactly, exactly. Brooke Shields and Christopher Atkins. This movie, it was from 1980. It has an eight on Rotten Tomatoes, which is probably one of the worst scores I've ever seen. Oh, I, so you're not eight out of ten, just like eight out of what? 100? Eight out of 100. Wow, yeah. okay. Yeah. Anyway, it was like these these young kids that get stuck on an island, right? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's scroll down. He's, he's on uh, Wikipedia right now. Here's the important thing. Budget, $4.5 million. Box office, $58.8 million. Sorry, Rotten Tomatoes. Oh, uh, yeah, it made money. Don't matter. These, these two, these two you know, young people that get stuck on an island, they fall in love. It's like a love story. It's, I remember it was, it was widely panned in a lot of movies like Airplane and a bunch. It was really like a big deal. And this is very much the same kind of thing, right? There, there's a man and a woman on the back glass and she's not wearing any clothes and he's not wearing any clothes. And they're like hugging and it's romantic. And then there's like two tigers on the left and on the right because tigers are in the jungle i guess i took it more to be just tarzan really i yeah. you know this is uh, no i got i got a blue lagoon vibe from this okay yeah <laughs> the worst part though about these poor tigers is it looks like i drew them like they look horrible it, it's it's like you drew something and then you left it in the sun and it sort of melted a little bit it was <laughs> i feel really bad for for the mitchells because this one just did not pan out the way it should have this was, of course, Jungle Lord crowns you king of the pinball jungle. Yep, I will say this right now. This is the best bi-level game. Wow. Black, Black Knight's the best playing. Oh, of course. The but this is the best overall. Over the Christmas holidays, I borrowed a Black Knight from my buddy. And I'll tell you what, man, it is a great shooter. It It is so much fun going in and around. But the rules are kind of lacking i think the rules are not lacking with jungle lord okay so so can you give us kind of an overview i know you're not the rules guy but can you give us like a little overview well, if you as open to... up that flyer 
page three again, it tells you all you need to know. It has the exciting five bank double trouble. Ooh. Double scoring. Can you say multipliers? You know, everyone wants to know the play field multiplier. There it is. Multi ball trademarked, of course, by Williams. First single ball double scoring. Wow. Multiplier, that bonus multiplier that goes up to 10x a drain shield, basically a ball saver. That's the first drain shield, by the way. The first, well, yes, the first drain shield. I love what they, because we made up the term. Magna save returns with a more correct implementation where we just pulse and you, you have to earn your pulses. It's 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 pretty cool. I have played Jungle Lord. I really, I, I kind of like Jungle Lord. A friend of mine was asking me like, hey, you know, there's a Jungle Lord for sale. What do you think? And I'm like, ah, it's all right, I guess. If you can get by the fact that it's like Blue Lagoon and the tigers look like they're melted. But you spoke a couple of moments ago about the sort of the Barry Ausler drop targets with flippers at the bottom. And this, I think, perfects it when it comes to where it should be and how it should be. It shouldn't be kind of up in the corner of the play field. It should be like a, an upper play field. Oh, upper play field's awesome. Has a little bagatelle, bagatelle thing on the side with a buzzer. The game has a buzzer. So if you go through the lane you don't want to, it buzzers at you. I love it. Like, you failed. Ugh, brutal. It's nothing nothing like harassing you when you I don't. I love it. I love it. More harassment, the better. We need more harassing games. <laughs> it's uh, the the uh, the art on the play field is much better uh, than the art on the back glass, in my opinion. It's it's much more like they're fighting off snakes at the bottom, and there's this cool kind of sword, kind of Black Knight esque sword in the middle. Super neat that way. It seems like quite the effort to work on one of these bi level games, right? If you get if you got to get up under there, is it a lot of work? It seems difficult uh it'd be more difficult in a valley because williams actually would cut them from two different sheets of plywood as opposed to valley you just used what basically took a regular play field and just would chop it and then put the one part on top and the other part in the bottom like you can go under the upper play field on these so you have to i think my original black knight has some kind of connector though so you can it's still a pain to loosen everything and get the upper play field up but you can remove it yeah, there's so the the bagatelle on the left side is kind of an interesting feature. It's basically you lock a ball in the in the kicker on the right side, right? And then it yep. sort of the idea is the ball is shrunk. It does a cool light show and it fires the little the ball. It's a t- small ball and then a bagatelle and you're trying to get all four lanes. If you go through a lane you already went through, you get the buzzer sound. And it now it's got uh, a there's a lot of plastic on here. There is a lot of plastics on this entire machine, which is really impressive because nowadays it's like they they try to minimize the amount of plastic. Oh, they, 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 all these games, Black Knight has a ton of plastics on it because you got the two play fields, so it's like you can put more plastics. It's it's a it's a cool little game. Would you buy one? What would you pay for one of these? You say it's the best buy level game. Uh, I don't know, fifteen hundred. Okay. Maybe I'd go up to 2000. It was really nice. It was, it was a nice one? Okay. A really nice one. I mean, it's... And they made a ton They made a ton of them, and they usually, they're usually they usually not that expensive. Of course, I shouldn't say that, because now they will be, but they're usually reasonably priced. I know... Um, and, and that's mostly reasonably priced because the fact that it looks like it's creepy Tarzan. Like, my, my wife, when she first played this, she saw this, and she's like, oh, that's a really fun game. She's like, but 
I'd have to like knit little sweaters and stick it on the back glass to cover up the nipples. <laughs> and it has the, it's the one with the two different color cabinet also. Okay, yeah. So because usually they were all black, right? And they just sort of stencil something on them. Well, no, they were, well, they were originally whatever color they were. This actually has two different versions. There's an earlier version and a later version. I'm trying to remember which one. It was red and blue. I don't remember which one was the, uh, whatever the one you see the most of, that's the one that was the second one. Yeah, I think it's the blue one. The one that I've seen the most is the blue one. So that brings us to sort of the next bi-level game, and that was Pharaoh. By Tony Kramer. By Tony Kramer again. This is uh, May of 1981. It is an Egyptian theme. Sells 2,500 units. It's the Williams System 7. This does the art by Seamus McLaughlin and sound by Tony Kolerk. Kotlerick. Kotlerick. Oh, my God. We're sorry. Software by Chris Omarzu. Omarzu. Who the heck are these people? Like this, it, this seems like a fill the line game if I've ever seen one, right? It was like the, it was like an eclectic random group of people, like and and ones we don't normally see. It has the largest upper play field of the Williams buy levels. I don't really like the Bagatelle thing in Jungle Lord. Like the rules might be better or whatever, but I think this is the kind of the most fun one because it's got these like looping capture areas, which are really cool. That's why I love pinball because of the opinions. You see, to me, this is the least fun. Really? Oh, yeah. Well, it's got three drop targets. It's got kind of a looping capture. It's got two up kicker, two. um, Crank up the sound on this one and tell me you're not going to want to kill someone soon. That okay? So that's raw, raw, and it's it's background noise. I I went to a pinball show once. Actually, no, it was multiple times. Pacific Pinball Expo would always have a pharaoh there, and they would crank it up for some reason, and that's all you would hear in the one section of the floor. Was this? What's the other thing it says? Cobras. Yeah, that's it. Cobras. Yeah, that's it. Uh, you hear that on stream from time to time, and you're like, what is going on over there? It, okay, well, I think it has some pretty cool art. It's got, like, the pharaoh in the lower play field. It's kind of neat. The back glass is really cool. So it's got, like, the pharaoh. He's riding the horse, and he's got, like, a lady uh, next to him. Uh, the, the, the horse. They have weird hair. <laughs> They have like afros or something. It's weird. The horses are very oddly designed. It's very strange looking hair. Um, if you look carefully, you could probably see something in there like lady stuff. But I mean, it's here's the top and then here's like the bottom. Oh, yeah. Okay. Ah, uh, yes. Wow, you know, I never saw that all these years. It's it's, it's pretty wild little backlash. And it's really good with the theme. I mean, it has, the music is, is you know, like you would expect it to be. Yep. Everything matches the theme. Would you say it's a world under glass? No, I wouldn't, but you can say that. Okay. One of the most overused terms. Cliché. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I mean that's kind of, it's kind of a cool game. It's cool. It's kind of cool. But you see, we're when we get to the next, you have Black Knight, three ball, multi ball, speech. Then you have Jungle Lord, Jungle Lord. You have you know, multi ball. You have speech. You have Bagatelle. You have all this stuff going on. Pharaoh. You got the multi ball and speech. But when we get to the next one, no more speech. Too expensive. 
Then we get into Barry. I think Barry's best layout. That's a controversial comment. Solar Fire. And it's wrong, but yes. Solar Fire. It's a sci-fi theme. June of 81. System 7 Williams. It sells 782 units. Ooh. Hard one to come by. It is a bi-level standard body. The Mitchells on art, again, they're just machines. Sound and software by Ed Sochi. Uh, of course, video is really, really uh, taking off at the moment. Uh, when we're talking June of 81, like really take off. Defender is out now. It is selling like gangbusters. We got Defender. We got you know, Pac-Man is out. Donkey Kong is out. Selling 4,000 units, I would say, between 1981 and 1984 was pretty pretty hard stuff to do and you can see here that this just this fell right off like right off you go from thirteen thousand units like 12 months before to like less than a thousand which is pretty crazy and i think solar fire is super cool personally i i think this is a great game i've never played one it could probably be the worst game ever but when I look at this, I'm like, man, this is this looks cool. It looks like they've refined by level. Why should I buy this? What does the flyer say? Do I have do I have um, profits out of this world? Oh, here you go. Here you go. Sizzling play, hot profits. Suddenly, a terrifying explosion rips through the sun, and raging fires burn out of control. The red-hot solar fires spawn a demonic breed of alien, a breed never before known to man. Your mission? To fight off the alien menace and extinguish the fires that feed their powers. Wow. wow. I didn't know that was the whole... I had Woo. no idea that was the... Uh, I am hook, the, line, and wow, sinker. Wow, I'm, I'm totally changed my mind now. Yeah, you have the flashbank, the black hole, the alien eject, the solar target... The solar gun. <laughs> the solar gun. The solar gun is funny. The solar gun is actually a doodle, which Williams had. Um, I don't think they patented it, but they were known for their. They had several doodle bug games where they had a doodle bug, love bug, um, dipsy doodle, and they used what they call the, the doodle, which is just a ball. With a magnet, and it would, the magnet would pulse, and the ball would go up and down in a little space. A lot of people will know that from um, Fireball Two. Fireball Two has it, which that's why I don't think Williams patented it because it's in a valley game. But this, I think, was the last time that Williams used it. Now, this is again a bi-level game. On the top, it has that you know drop targets in front of the flippers. I think the reason that this game draws me in is. It, the theme is pretty cool, but I think it's the fact that there's only two exits to the upper play field. So I feel like I'll spend more time up there and get my money's worth in comparison to something like Black Knight where you're kind of on the on the edge all the time. Now, if you look at the upper play field on Solar Fire and say, you know, I think I've seen that before. You did. It's Grand Lizard. It's almost the exact same upper. The, the upper part of the play field on Grand Lizard is literally a copy of this. It was too good not to use again. It was too good not to use again. I mean, it only sold like it sold less than a thousand units. Nobody saw it anyway, right? It's the same same loop targets, same same spot. And there's so many so many drop targets. There's three um, offsets on the bottom and three on the on the left side. Then up at the top on the upper play field, there's there's like another three targets on the left, and there's five five uh, four in the front. Drop targets are as far as the eye can see. It's got cool sound. No no speech though. We had to cut that. So it doesn't talk. Mm. You can't hear the aliens that you're battling. 
Yes, you just have to imagine them. Now, when you look at the back glass, something really strikes me there. It's red? Well, (laughs) it's red, but when you look at those machines, when you look at the ships, it's totally a ripoff of Battlestar Galactica and the Cylons. They're Cylon ships from the original Battlestar Galactica back okay. in the seventies. Totally a ripoff of that. The other interesting thing is it actually has a flasher. Actually, might have more than one behind the back glass. One of the first games I can remember that actually had that. So when it does an explosion, you get a flasher going off in the in the back box. It looks cool. This is what the power of theme does to me, and this is why I, okay. there's Stern is so successful. If you put a Jungle Lord and a Solar Fire next to each other, I am all in on Solar Fire. Right? I I would be like, man, this is right up my. It could be a crappy game. So if we swap them, so Solar Fire became Jungle Lord. So now the Bagatelle is like the solar gun. Uh, that is in my living room. Boo. Okay. Wow. Super important with the theme. I'm telling you, it's it's exactly how it goes. And I and it, you know, I'm sure it's probably still like this era of pinball is very different than today's era of pinball. Like even sort of crappy pinball back then is still pretty fun. Oh yeah, all of the games of the era are mostly like do the thing. And if you ever play this in a tournament, just go to the top and shoot those drop targets over and over and over. So we're moving. This is where pinball is dying now. Oh, it's it's hurting. We're getting pounded by the video game, so... Yeah, this is Barracora. We're talking September of 81. We're moving into the fall here. It's a sci-fi theme. It's a Williams System 7. Sells 2,350 units. We're back to the standard bodies. The design here, Roger Sharp, Steve Epstein, and Barry Ausler. Art by Doug Watson. Sound and software by Ed Sochi. Uh, We spoke about a fellow named H.R. Geiger back when we spoke about uh, Space Invaders from Bali in our in our Class of 81 podcast. He was a Swiss artist, very popular in the mid-70s, and he was really the inspiration for the design style of the movie Alien. The backlash of this game is clearly his painting called Lee 1. If you look at that, if you look at that painting, it is the Barracora backlash. So that's where that inspiration comes from. Could say inspiration. I could say completely ripped off. Eh, tomato, tomato. Well, this this Doug Watson, the artist. Remember, he's the one who did Quicksilver, which is almost a direct copy of a heavy metal magazine cover. Pretty popular in the pinball world to sort of take a look at what's cool and what's different and what's out there. And this is a prime example of that. And this HR, HR Geiger was quite the nut. If you look at him, just go, he's worth a Googling folks. He's totally worth a Googling. Don't do it late at night when you've, when you've had, you know, an anti-pesto because you'll probably have weird nightmares. Uh, there's a couple of really interesting bits and pieces here about Barracora. So, I mean, of course, uh, Doug drew the, uh, predatory fish morphing model, um, with sort of like landscape of teeth. And he called this female character Barracuda. And he presented this drawing to Mike Strahl, who was of course the president of Williams who liked the art, but felt that Barracuda kind of had a negative connotation. Why? Is it because of the heart song? I get that. You mean the best song ever written? Whoa. Okay. Take that. Imagine by John Lennon. Okay. Mike, he would, he and a few other people sort of kind of started kicking around alternate names during a meeting. That's when Doug Watson suggested Barracora. 
as the woman's name. And Mike thought that that was great. He loved it. So Doug decided to then discreetly put a bunch of naked barracoras on the playfield. So if you look at the playfield in a couple of different spots, that's when now the character, of course, is less sort of human and more alien. So he pushed that bar and 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 made sort of a naked alien fish lady. Yeah, remember, if it's not skin, it's fine. <laughs> exactly. I think we went through that in the, um, the Stern episode with Viper. You can do the nudity as long as it's metal. Exactly. So there's a couple of different names in here. Uh, a couple of names I don't think anybody has ever heard in the pinball industry. Uh, you know, hobby. I don't think anybody who's ever listened to this pinball podcast today has ever heard of a man named Roger Sharp. So who do you, who is Roger Sharp for those who have been under a rock since the 1970s? He's the man who saved pinball. Yeah. Thank you for that. He's a magazine writer for GQ. He also wrote a book about pinball called, uh, I believe pinball. He's got the, probably the, the greatest mustache in, in pinball. Could we all agree on that? It's up there, yeah. I'd, I'd say so. I mean, you got you got uh, you got David Fix. He's probably got the second best mustache in pinball. And uh, Roger was the basically the main licensing guy for Williams in the uh, I think starting in around the mid mid eighties to through the nineties. Yeah, when licensing sort of started to become the thing. And he's still doing licensing for pinballs to this day. Roger's Roger's a pretty great guy. He was recently on the last uh, couple of episodes of the Super Awesome pinball show with uh, Christopher Fanchi and uh, Christian Line, who, of course, were nominated for a Pinball Industry Award this year. Part of that is because of some of their really great interviews. You can catch that on uh, on episode 23 and episode 25. Super great conversationalist. Now, there's also another name here. This is one that people may not know quite as well as Roger Sharp, and that's Steve Epstein. And who was he? Well, if you're in the Northeast, you know who Steve Epstein is. And he ran the Broadway Arcade in New York City for years and years and years. He's a co-founder of Papa, and he recently passed away, unfortunately, during this whole COVID thing. If you are a survivor of cancer or somebody who has had cancer has affected your life, swing on over to Silver Ball Swag, uh, and you can get a flipping off cancer shirt which goes towards cancer research. And that, of course, how Steve had passed away very quickly. Originally, and this is according to Roger Sharp from an episode of Pinball Profile hosted by Jeff Teolis. Uh, that is in the episode link is in our show notes. Originally, this game was designed by Roger Sharp, Steve Epstein, and it was Las Vegas. It had a roulette wheel under the playfield, and uh, Roger and Steve worked on the ideas and the rules, and then they passed it off to Williams. Now, there's a great little write-up about Barracora in the Pinball Compendium book, which you can find on Amazon, where Roger, as he normally does writes a very long blurb when asked a very simple question. <laughs> God bless him. And he basically talks about how at this time, uh, Williams was sort of looking for, for people to kind of do some designs. And they had approached Roger a few times because he was very much part of the, the pinball, uh, the, the founder of the pinball media, if you will. And of course he approached Steve and they said, okay, well let's, let's kind of have some fun and make a design. And Roger would pop up quite a few times, uh, for companies like game plan, even doing designs. Isn't that right? That is correct. 
the layout wasn't as good as Roger and Steve kind of wanted. They needed some tweaks. So it was Barry who helped them out on that design. A few months later, they would return to Williams and see their basic playfield layout, but a completely different game. It was no longer Las Vegas. It had become Barracora. Barry would say that the layout wasn't really that good. According to Barry, there were a lot of changes from the early design that Roger and Steve put together. But they're still given design credit because a lot of the rules and a lot of it is still their machine. Now it is a favorite, especially in the tournament scene. Everyone loves some Barracora. Now, why, why, is it a, why is it a tournament scene favorite? Ah, uh, the rules. It, ha- it has, like, uh, the one feature that Roger really wanted to put in there that is in there is the, is the double lanes. Like, it has a set of lanes on top, so, and it has the inserts above them, but then it has another set of inserts. And you can move the lights one one row is moved by the right flipper, the other move, row is moved by the left flipper. Oh, okay. Which I really can't think of any other games that do that. So one increases one increases one thing, and the other increases another thing. It's also got a really cool orbit that goes up where you spell Barracora. And it has their control drop targets, too. So, like, the, the memory drop targets. Yeah, very Stern-esque influence there. Which is always cool. It's got a really cool art package. It's got a, it's got a wonderful orbit spinner. Yeah! Man, you love orbit spinners. It's great. So good. It's a very kind of cool theme and game. It's unique. I've never played one. I have a friend of mine. He loves this game. Like he just, if he could find one of these, he is, it is in his collection and it's never going away, which I find quite interesting. The, um, you could tell that pinball is hurting. So the lane change thing I was talking about, they actually trademarked it. It's called multi lane change. Wow. Wow. I wonder if that's still copyrighted <laughs> if you try to use that you get sued williams they were they were all about their trademarks they were like the deep root of their time if they came up with a term they trademarked that so fast yeah multi-ball forever that's why none of the other companies had multi-ball you just you just got multiple balls but it wasn't called multi-ball we're seeing a significant change in the language of their marketing this one is is, is sad in the way that it is marketed it's Affordable, reliable, and fully loaded. The 1982 Williams. So it doesn't say like, there's no like go fishing for profits because it's a fish or anything. It's, it's, yeah. It's like, it's like, hey, this won't break. Uh, and it's cheap. Yeah. And it's got lots of stuff in it. Single, s- simple, single level play field design. Reliable. It's a bit of a bummer, but that's, that, that is the world in which we're living. Pinball is dying. No speech. Too expensive. All right. Should we get into this? This is a pretty sad time here in 1982. Pinball is struggling. Everybody is, all the money is going into video. All these new cool themes like your Robotrons and, you know, Stargate and Tari is dominating with really fun things like Missile Command. And they're so much cheaper to operate. You just plug them in and they go. That's basically it. That's when Steve Ritchie's Hyperball kind of comes out Mm -hmm. it's like a video game pinball machine so immediately all of the other manufacturers just freak out and of course like wide bodies by levels and now shooty pinball-y games every manufacturer's got to do one yeah they had the bally had the pac-man game that was Part pinball, part video. Even Gottlieb had Caveman. Oh, I played that. That is the worst thing I've... Oh, my God. That is so bad. Don't even remind me. Wow. Violent reaction there. Oh, my God. It's so bad. If you see that machine, even if it's in, like, a bar, 
Just like burn it and run. Wow. Trust me. The opinions expressed by David Dennis are not necessarily those. So that's when uh, Spellbinder came out. Now, this was never released. This is a machine that Barry worked on, and it was basically Barry's version of Hyperball. So I'll mention it. (laughs) I don't have anything on it, but it was in there. Then there's Cosmic Gunfight. This is Uh, now we're into the summer of 1982. It's a sci-fi theme. It's a System 7. Sells a thousand units. Doug Watson and Larry Day, who I think is a fantastic pinball artist. Uh, Sound and software by a new fellow, Bill Futzenruder. Not well, he's new to Williams, but not new because we we talked about him on the Stern episode. He was at Stern originally. Cosmic Gunfight, the 25-cent solution. Oh, come on. There's got to be better flyer material than that. Cosmic Gunfight has everything you want in a pinball and less. I assume they're talking about the price. I guess so. So hold on. Hold on here. So it's got on the flyer, it goes the everything. So Cosmic Gunfight is not only has all the features proven to be the strongest with multi-lane change, multi-ball, Bonus multiplier, extra ball. It also introduces a brand new attraction, Cosmic Ball, making all the ABC Lights awards Cosmic Ball for 30 to 99 seconds of unlimited balls after the last regular ball. Time is added by completing the three bank or by extending multi-ball play. And during Cosmic Ball, making each three bank in sequence scores a special. And then it goes dot, dot, dot. And less! Cosmic Gunfight is the 25-cent solution for the pinball-playing purist. And for those locations that require a variety of games, less complicated, easier to understand. Its simplicity makes it a surefire winner. Affordable to buy and to play, Cosmic Gunfight is priced for profit. Ooh, they are panicking. Yeah, they use use the multi-lane change again, but they did it different than in Barracora. They actually have two sets of lanes on the right and left, and you control the lanes... On the right with the right flipper and the left with the left flipper, which is cool. It's kind of neat. It's got two sets of lanes. It's got a grid. It's got the upper lanes on the left side, and it's got upper lanes on the right side, but they they don't sort of connect. Oh, and a two-ball multi-ball. It's got a cool little art package. It's like spacemen riding horses. It's, yeah, cowboys in space riding mechanical space horses. Now, originally, this was called Dragonfly which was a spacey dragonfly man theme. The art didn't test well, and and if you look at it, yeah, yeah, it, no, no. It's a whole thing. You can see that on IPDB. It's like a, it's like a man who's also a dragonfly for arms, like the see-through insect arms. He's purple. He's got like a huge bush. No comment. Um, so you can see why they changed it. And I think they changed it. Re- I think the, the theme they went with is actually very cool. Oh, I love it. It's got four pop bumpers, which is kind of neat. The only issue is uh, in tournament play, I hate to keep saying that, it's right orbit. That's all you – you don't shoot anything else. You just shoot the right orbit. Yeah. It suffers from a lot of the games at this time where it's like not only is it do the thing, it's like there's literally only one thing. I'm not a tournament player, but I, I play in small tournaments locally, and that's mostly because I want to meet people and I want to play pinball on machines that I don't normally get to play on. And that usually com- goes with the tournament, tournament crowd. But I'll tell you, once you sort of learn some of the things about these games that you love, it completely ruins them. It, it, it can because you get on there and you're like, oh, I'm flipping the ball and I'm getting the extra ball and I'm doing this. And you're like, oh, I can never really get anywhere with the bonus multiplier. And then somebody goes, oh, yeah, just shoot the right orbit all day and you'll get like five billion. And you're like, oh, man, <laughs> you've ruined it for me. Come on, Ron. But I, I love the art in this game. 
Cowboys in space. Yeah, it's the, if you can get like a back glass and just put it on your wall, you know, that's where it's at. Barry says the art department submitted the Cosmic Gunfight artwork. I had to make a few revisions to the title into the theme with the play field. In the end, it worked out pretty well. I guess we were the first Cowboys and Aliens. So then they moved on October of 82. So even now you can see that there's a huge space in between their releases too, right? Like they're not releasing on a monthly or bi-monthly schedule. There's more space in here. And they went with a game called Warlock. Love Warlock. And the reason I bring this one up, again, sci-fi theme, I'm all in, right? Uh, 369 units. It's by Mike Cuban, Seamus McLaughlin on art, sound and software by Carrie Kolker. It has some of the worst art I have ever seen, which is why I wanted to make sure I included it, as well as this machine is pretty much a direct ripoff of Blackout. Oh, it's a, a direct copy of Blackout. Yep. Sl- slight modifications, but uh, it's Blackout with a better rule set. You can't you can't rip off Claude Fernandez. Oh. Claude, that's Claude Fernandez's gimmick is ripping people off. So you can't rip him off. The basic rules are you have the three spinners, and then you have three drop target banks. Each is associated with the spinner. That's buy it. So if you hit the bank down, it increases the value of that spinner. And the whole game is just hitting spinners. It's awesome. It's got the cool William sound and everything else. I am a fan. So uh, Mike, uh, Seamus McLaughlin would say in the back glass, there are two faces that are, it's really kind of creepy down on the bottom right in the clouds. Those faces are the face of himself and the designer, Mike Cuban, Uh, Mike Cubin. Cuban. Cuban. Mike Cuban. So this is, uh, again, that's that's, uh, similar... uh, rules to meteor right where you're kind of building uh, you're hitting drop targets and you're building up those spinners so you can certainly see that uh, the, the the influence that mike would bring from stern into williams uh speaking of stern where was stern in 1982 stern electronics not in a good place basically dead right yeah it was probably orbiter one action going on and yeah so that's why we're seeing this sort of the stern designers you know jumping ship that's why mike is here video is just on a tear so what do you got to do you got to you got to do video game tie-ins right of course you do you got to cash in on the on the branding Mm -hmm. and defender just killed it for williams so in december of 1982 the sci-fi theme williams system 7 came out selling 369 units designed by joe kamenkow the mitchells on art and carrie kolker on sound and software and of course, it's not a good game. No, I disagree. Disagree completely. If you can find one that actually works, that's the one problem. That's that's the first problem. I, it took me playing a couple, uh, several of them before I found one. It was a Pintastic that actually everything worked on it. It has all the uh, Defender sounds in it, so it just sounds great immediately. So you got that taken care of. It has a cool lock shot, which you can only hit from the upper flipper. It has, I think, I don't know, at least five single drop targets that pop up all around the playfield. Think like Cactus Canyon, and it's just it's super cool, and it's 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 like complicated. There's a smart bomb I think on it. I think it has an extra button on the side, and you hit like just like on the game, you hit you know smart bomb. Joe Kamenkow would say that the smart bomb in Jurassic Park, the Data East, was directly inspired by the smart bomb from Defender. The other thing about this game, I know it's. It's got some extra complexity in it because I remember when they were coming out with um, 
new boards to replace like your old Williams boards, like aftermarket stuff, it always had Hyperball and Defender listed as like special configuration. So there's there's special stuff going on with that game. Yeah. So what has Landers Pod Smart Bombs, Mutants, Swarmers, and player after player after player lining up to take the challenge? Defender, of course. So what's what's interesting about Defender is that it has this very familiar back box that everybody had back then. Yeah, it's it's the Hyperball back box. Oh, the Hyperball back box. They had a ton of those. So because of the Hyperball game, which was uh, Steve Ritchie's uh, gun shooting game, had this weird thing. They thought they were going to sell 40,000 of these units. They had like so many extras. So because you've got all of these things you gotta put them in a pin right it's almost like a it's like a dmd back box but the dmd is like this weird cover where a dmd would be it's very oddly shaped it's, yeah it's like but it has like a panel like a speaker panel yep there was a game called rat race which was there was a big novelty craze at the time that barry Ouser worked on it was a cornic concept there was the head-to-head joust game that sold 400 units in april great game that's another great game if you can find one working. Again, I've seen them at shows, and, and they usually will not last till the end of the show before they break. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I'd say out of all of the head-to-head, because there's been a lot of head-to-head pinball concepts through the years, that the Joust one was the best. Did it right. Yep, and it has a completely different rule set for single ball play, for single player play. It's another cool thing it does. But if you want to talk cost-cutting, let's get... To time fantasy there was the three pack right so the three pack of games that were marketed together were warlock defender and time fantasy and time fantasy was good old-fashioned pinball at a good old-fashioned price which <laughs> just sounds horrible surrealistic fantasy theme in a kaleidoscope of colors it looks like someone who was stoned when they made it, is what it looks like. It's like a little frog, man. It's it's a snail. It's a snail. Get it right. It's a snail. We call it snail. But it's the snail's got legs and arms. Yep. It's a snail, though. Simplicity of play attracts players of all skill levels. Simplicity of playfield assures reliable operation. Yeah. That's basically saying there is nothing in this game. There is nothing in that game. If you, if you want to laugh... Won't bore you with it here, but download the manual for this and look at the solenoid table where it has the, I don't know, 22 possible solenoids you could have on their system. And the total amount of solenoids on this game, you have three pop bumpers. I'm not going to include the flippers because they're always three pop bumpers, the two slings, and the outhole kicker. That's it. Oh my God. That's it. There's nothing else in here. This is like a System 1 Gottlieb, it's so bad. But. It has a quirky little fun to it because it has something that I don't think any other game had. The whole object when you play this, well, at least in a tournament. So there's a little tunnel. If you remember Phoenix, the little yes. the little Alcer uh, tunnel there. This is it's on the left, and it has a strobing. It has four inserts that say time T I M E, and it strobes, and you want to hit the target when one of them is lit, and you you get it. And if you can spell time, it will start a. I think it's like a thirty second. Ball saver. Okay. And the whole the whole game is you want to do that, start it, and then drain. And then plunge up to the top lanes. There's five lanes, and you want to get those lanes. And they're controllable. So you want to complete the, the lanes as many times as you can during the 30 seconds and continually drain over and over and over. 
<laughs> and that's the game. It, when, at least when you play in a tournament, that's the game. And we affectionately call it snail snail time. That's when you get the ball saver. It's called snail time. It's like it's got all these like mushrooms. Yep. yep. And like rainbows. Yep. It is as cost cut as you could possibly be. It's like it is. It is something yep. else. Yep. The snail dude is on the plastic, and he's like standing with these crazy eyes. Yeah, because he's stoned. Oh man! It oh, even man. says psychedelic right in the thing, man. No wonder parents thought that like these were the corruptors of youth. What? But this game was very popular among parents. That's the funny thing. Because it's like a cartoon or something. No, because it was in your notes, and I read that part. <laughs> Great quote by Ed Sochi, the programmer. Testing was interesting and showed us something we didn't expect. The game was played by an older audience. We were told their parents were playing the game while their children were playing all the ticket vending machines. Wow, even then. It tested well in the family centers, but it didn't do so well in locations for hardcore gamers. I do remember that there was an earnings report showing the game made over $500 for a week on one location. However, it just wasn't mainstream and didn't perform well in all locations. So then there was a bunch of canceled projects between 83 and 84. Pinball's dead. Williams is dead. Yeah, you have Guardian, Starfighter, Starlight, which they actually made a hundred of, and of course because I'm me, I have played it. It's 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 okay. Um, it it also it forced me to make a correction. Oh my! I have to make a correction. So I, I ask this question all the time. It's one of the trivia questions I always ask to name the three Williams System Nine games, which that's just the the board set it used. Yeah, system one, two, three, four, five. You know, as we've been going over, you know, system set. We're on system seven right now, and the answer is always, it's always space shuttle, sorcerer, and comet. However, starlight. Even though they they only made a hundred of them, there are system nine starlights. Huh. So I guess I have to amend that question because it was a production game, and they did make them. It wasn't like they were only prototypes. They did make some that were System 9. It's like a wizard theme if thing. If I remember, it has a ton of rollovers in the middle of the playfield. if I remember. It has the laser uh, balls rollovers in the same spot yeah. for the bowling pins. But it has an orbit spinner, so you would like... Yes, it's all I need. And it's really... it's super. They started going the stern route, too, where the playfield... I mean, the, the cabinet doesn't even have game-related artwork. It literally just has the Williams W on it. That's when you know it, it starts to get bad, when we're not even going to bother with custom yeah we're using all those leftover cabinets now we're not even putting a, a decal or a piece of metal on the on the bottom it's just a blank and piece by this of time 1984 black. the video game market is collapsing everything everything is collapsing this could be the end whatever will happen pinball's dead williams is dead and every company was struggling to survive in the industry sales fell off the cliff for years after a massive expansion. As we mentioned before, you're selling things like Black Knight with 13,000 units, and now you're canceling projects because you can't even sell 1,000 units. Pinball is laying off everyone, and it's becoming all too common that the pinball industry just starts spiraling. Uh, Pinball machines began having less and less innovation, as well as less and less of the innovations of past years. Investment in people and technologies all but stopped in pinball. Ron, can anything save pinball? Well, Barry Ausler will have something to say about that. He's going to make a game that's going to keep the lights on. That's going to set the stage for the next resurgence of pinball starting in the mid-80s. But that's 
story is for another time. That's right. That's the end of our podcast of Pinball is Dying Part 1, Williams, in the early 80s. There's a lot of cool games in there, even even those stripped-down ones. A lot of them are still fun to play. I, I think they, they were doing better than a lot of manufacturers as far as some of the stuff they were doing. <laughs> Let's put it that way. Diamonds in the rough there, but even the rough itself is very shiny and pretty. Barracora, I mean... There's some good games in there. But but Pinball's dead. Man, we will never be the same. Or will it? <gasps> Stewie! Stewie, can you come over here? Hey, what? what? Okay, okay. Oh, alright. Oh, oh, I gotta read this again. As always, you can send your comments, questions, corrections, and concerns to silverballchronicles at gmail.com. We look forward to all your messages and we read every one. Please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or your favorite podcatcher. Turn on automatic downloads so you don't miss a single episode. Remember to leave a five-star review wherever you find us on This Week in Pinball Promoter Database. That way more people can find us. Do you want to support the podcast and need a new t-shirt? Of course you do. Swing on over to SilverballSwag.com and pick up a Silverball Chronicles t-shirt to help us keep the lights on. Back to you, Ron. Well, thanks, Dewey. Okay, any housekeeping or anything you want to bring up? Want me to bring up in the middle? Uh, no housekeeping or housekeeping, either. <laughs> uh, uh, it just never gets f***ing funny. No, no. It never, <laughs> never gets old at all. Oh, funny, you said, yeah. Yeah. William Tomozowski only lasted three titles. It says Edward. Oh. It'll just make more... Blips and bloops, blips and bloops. Just simpler sounds. It, 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 man, that didn't come off. Well. Let me try again. <laughs> <laughs> well, Tony Kramer was nicknamed Colonel Nutsy after the wristwatch had after his. Tony Kramer was nicknamed Colonel Nutsy after his rich watch. Rich watch. Can you read this? The red-hot solar fires span a demonic bread of alien bread. No, breed, dumbass. Well, I want to. I want to think of something good to say here. <laughs> we're not. We're not scripted at all. No. Nope. Oh, okay, I got it. Okay. <laughs>